Well, we are almost done with the book of Luke, and I, I wanted to, I, I shared this with someone the other day, and I've shared it with some of the, some of the people here in this congregation, that Luke has changed me. Um, I don't know that I shared that last week. I may have, but preaching through the book of Luke has changed me. Um, it has changed uh, the way I see the world, the way I see myself, the way I see uh, people socioeconomically. It has even changed my politics. Um, we had a, a recent kind of like symposium on politics and the pulpit um, with several half a dozen pastors in the area a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about um, how to deal with politics in an age that is, as char- that is as charged as it, the climate is right now politically. And um, one of the things we all agreed on, and there were Presbyterians and Baptists and Pentecostals, and there were pastors whose congregations were on the right, middle and left. And one of the things we talked about is that um, it is a pastor's job to... Uh, to comfort the troubled and trouble the comfortable. In other words, if there is a, if there is a political leaning we have that we are very comfortable in, a pastor's job is to challenge that comfort, especially uh, if we find ourselves drifting from Jesus' own ideal of the way the world should work. And that works on both sides. So if you are a pastor in a congregation that leans to the right, it's your job to... Um, press in on areas where we may find ourselves guilty of some type of political idolatry. If you're a pastor that has a congregation that leans to the left, you also have to push in on areas where political idolatries can happen because Jesus is not so easily pegged in either side. Um, Jesus critiques all political systems because the kingdom of God and the ethic of Jesus Christ doesn't fall into such neat little categories. As human beings, we want to do that. We want to plant our flag and say, this is my camp. Because that's comfortable to do that. It is. It, it feels easy. It's, it's just an easier way to live our lives. This is my camp. This is my nice little box. This is where I'm at. But Luke has changed that for me in terms of wrestling me loose from assumptions I may have had and causing me to struggle sometimes thinking, all right, how is this going to go over? Because from the beginning of the book of Luke, and I've shared this with some people, um, you know, Mary's Magnificat is, oh great, the rich will be sent away hungry, and God is going to fill the poor with good things. I mean, that's the beginning of the book of Luke, and the whole book unpacks that way. And so how do you preach through, through uh, that? Now obviously there are contextual issues where there are unique things about the first century and ethics in the first century that Jesus is pressing in against. But finding the application for us living today is not only challenging, but necessary. Um, Our topic this morning deals with servanthood and suffering. And again, Jesus is turning uh, the ethics of this world, the assumptions of this world, up on its head. He's subversive. He's a subversive teacher. He takes the areas that we're comfortable in and yanks the rug right out from under us. And we are better for it, even though sometimes it hurts. And so let's read Luke 22, starting in verse 24, going through verse 30. 
A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greatest, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Father, now we thank you for the word of God which reveals to us your very heart. We are often shocked and surprised to find that uh, the very things that are normal in this world are the opposite of the things that move you and move your heart. Help us, O God, as we move through this text to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and let our hearts be convicted and convinced of its truth that we may be transformed into the likeness and image of your Son and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all want to be great at something. We all want to be great at something. Nobody wants to live your life and at your funeral say, you know, Bob was just average. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear that. We all want to be great. We want to master something. We want to be known for that greatness, especially if if we're really good at something and we master it. It feels good that people would recognize us. There's nothing wrong with that, per se, and it's, it's a human impulse Maybe it's an impulse of our fallen nature, but we all would like to be known as someone who is great at a particular discipline. I know I feel that way about my, my prowess, my theological skill in handling the word and knowing theology. I mean, I love it, but there's probably a part of my prideful nature that wants to be known as someone who is good at it. <clears throat> um, being good at something and not being recognized for it just doesn't satisfy us, you know. Our hearts want that recognition. And history bears out this idea that, that um, whoever is really good at something should be considered great in the eyes of men and women, right? Alexander was an incredible general. He conquered the known Mediterranean world and was given the title The Great. Alexander the Great. And there was Herod the Great. And in the ninth century, there was Charles the Great, Charlemagne, in France and in Europe. And the list goes on and on and on. And I think we naturally dread the idea that we would live our entire lives, die, and within a generation or two, be forgotten. Because we're surrounded by a world and world history where we remember people for being great at something. And so the idea of being mediocre or average or living and dying in obscurity just doesn't bode well with us. Well, after Jesus's, some of Jesus' deepest teaching in the New Testament last week on the Lord's Supper and Communion, 
The disciples, who are all Galilean peasants, want to know which one of them is going to be considered greatest in the kingdom. Right? These are poor fishermen, not from any noble lineage, and they want to know who's going to be the greatest. Jesus has just told them, one of you is going to betray me. And they first say, well, is it I, is it I, is it I, in the last passage? And now they're saying, which one of them will be the greatest? They're enthralled with the idea that following Jesus will exalt them to greatness as Jesus comes into his kingdom and his power, and they're still not exactly sure what that's going to look like, that Jesus is the promised Messiah who will one day sit on his throne judging the nations, and they're excited about the idea that they're going to go along with Jesus for that ride. Which one of us is going to be great in your kingdom? We, we think to ourselves, you know, the disciples sometimes are like boneheads. They just don't get it. But we probably would do the same thing. We probably would not have been picking up on all of the cues that Jesus was giving, not picking up on all of the signs. And in verse 24, it says, a dispute arose among them about who would be the greatest. And of course, they still think the kingdom of God is like other kingdoms in which the people at the top reign supreme and receive public accolades like those greats of history. They receive honor and respect publicly and have power over multitudes under them, their underlings, so to speak. And they don't understand that the kingdom of God is really an upside-down kingdom. And Jesus is going to be an upside-down kind of king. It's not the same kind of kingdom like the kingdoms in the world, and Jesus is not going to be the same kind of king like other kings in the world that exercise their power for their own benefit, their own fame, and subjugate the masses. And Jesus, as he keeps doing throughout the book of Luke, turns conventional wisdom up on its head. He likes doing that. He is subversive. And in an upside-down kingdom, with an upside-down king, greatness is defined differently. Our first point is Jesus redefines greatness. And in verse 25, this is what he says. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are called benefactors, but not so with you. Not so with you. Those in power, the king's of the Gentiles, they exercise their power and they lord it over people. But I don't want you to be that way, Jesus is saying. Don't be that way. No, I don't want you to be that way. Well, a benefactor was uh, an honored title. It's like calling someone your grace or your excellency. And a benefactor is someone who benefits others. It's, it's like a, a patron. The benefactor is someone who maybe builds public monuments in a local city or town and gives money to different causes and in return expects honor and often rises to power because the public is in debt to this person. And the person who has given this money in the ancient world to build these monuments has exactly intended it to be that way. They're not showering this person 
They didn't shower a benefactor with honor and accolades, and he says, no, 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 please. Right? That's, he welcomed it. He wanted it. The whole purpose of being generous, the whole purpose of his seeming philanthropy was to receive public honor and rise to power. So a benefactor was someone who achieved power by public funding of monuments and giving money to causes, putting the public in their debt so that when people saw that person, they would say, benefactor. And it was a title, similar to your excellency, your grace, you know, kiss the ring kind of behavior. I watched a documentary recently about Dale Carnegie, who was a Scotsman who came to the United States and hacked business. I say hacked, I mean he just, he had a mind for business, he figured out, I think he was in the steel business, some of you, and um, he was ruthless in the way he did business and became, I think, during his time, the richest man in the world. And he had probably billions in his day, which would, I don't know what it would translate to today, but he, you know, um, there was the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and all these different groups, but he was wealth beyond imagination, and um, he became a great philanthropist, and he wrote, he wrote all kinds of volumes and books about the way people like him should behave. And he identified himself as a robber baron. And he said, all the other robber barons like me ought to give our money away. And he gave his money away, and there's Carnegie Hall, and there's, and there's Carnegie Mellon Institution, and there's all these different institutions, and, and, and they're great institutions, but they all bear his name, <laughs> right? I mean, um, so it was great that he did that with his money after, you know, being ruthless in business, you know, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the way our world works. Let me, you know, cut the throats of all of my competition, you know, and shut down other small businesses and, you know, and monopolize my industry, and then I'll take all my millions and billions and give it away and look like a good guy. Well, that's a benefactor. That's exactly who Jesus is talking about. That's a benefactor, someone who gives all this money away and stamps their name on all their philanthropy. I'm not saying it's bad that he gave his money away, but what I'm saying is the Christian ethic is much deeper than that. The idea of why we serve who we serve and how we serve should not be tied to the appearances and the opinions of others. The idea that you would give without expectation of public recognition or serve without the expectation that your name would be in lights, in bold lights, was unheard of in the first century. It's almost unheard of today, but some people do it. The idea that someone would do good. And so benefaction, the key of benefaction and being a benefactor was public recognition and the gaining of status and power through that public recognition. If you weren't recognized for what you did, well, what was the point? And this is why the parable of the Good Samaritan is so powerful, because he takes care of this person and puts him in a a place of care and says, I'll cover the bill, just let me know. And he doesn't announce it. He just does it quietly in obscurity. He's not looking for public recognition. And so Jesus redefines greatness by introducing a new concept, which is the concept of servant leadership. 
Now, it's not new for us. We hear it all the time. And it's a good concept. And the power of the gospel is evident in the fact that it's a concept that even secular, godless people think is good. This, to me, is proof that the gospel is winning in our world in many ways. Not in every way, but it's permeating hearts and minds in ways that we're not always aware of. And Jesus says in verse 26, you know, he says, the Gentiles lord their authority over them. I don't want you to be this way, but not so with you. But rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Now, in the ancient world, age meant status. In our world, it's just the opposite. The older you are, the more of an idiot you are, sadly. You know, if you're young, all of your ideas are fresh and cool. And any, any tried, proven wisdom is passe, sadly. But in the ancient world, it's just the opposite. Young people didn't have status and power. It was, they, they didn't have any, any, any power. And so the idea that someone would become as a young person, right? Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise your, your youth. And so Jesus is telling them, let the greatest among you, because they have a question about greatness, who will be the greatest? Well, Jesus doesn't have a problem with being great, but he's saying that the way you're going to achieve greatness in the kingdom of God is not like the Gentiles, which for us means nowadays unbelievers. That's what it meant for Jews in the first century. For us, we're Gentiles, but you could translate that as being unbelievers. Let the one greatest among you be as become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves for who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? And Jesus says, obviously, we all know that the one who reclines at table, in other words, the one who's being served, is considered the greatest, but I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus says, I'm among you as one who serves. And it's a shocking contrast because it's the contrast of a, a powerful ruler, a king, or a dictator versus a table waiter. Let the one who is greatest among you be like someone who waits tables. They're looking for titles, and Jesus gives them towels. Let the greatest among you be like someone who serves or waits on tables. This is something even many church leaders don't get. I had a conversation the other day with someone about some churches that have a parking space up front that says reserved for the pastor. And if they're really with the program, it says reserved, there's a space right next to it, it says pastor's wife. <laughs> yes, yes, there are churches like that. Uh, but Jesus said, I am among you as the one who serves. It's not a popular concept to this day, even though we pay a lot of lip service to it, because it doesn't come with a whole lot of outward glory and fame and recognition. Servanthood is humble work. And it often feels thankless and can weary you. The greatness that disciples seek is found not in being great, as it were, but in being small by serving others. And this is a radical concept 
for the Jews in the first century. It still is a radical concept for us in different ways. In an article entitled, College Admissions Committee Accepts Recommendation by School Custodian, Rebecca Sabke, an undergraduate admissions counselor at an Ivy League school, reads over 2,000 college applications every year. She writes, the applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, head extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. Their accomplishments stack up quickly. But she's always on the lookout for one rare quality, servanthood as exemplified in this true story. A student from a large public school in New England was clearly bright as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had a supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurriculars, but one letter of recommendation caught my eye, she said. It was from a school custodian. And letters of recommendation are typically written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. This letter was different, though. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support this student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness for others. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights and empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian, wrote had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. And this student served others without any regard for recognition. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, she said, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. When nobody was watching, the student, she said, was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. And so my question for us is, do we serve others when nothing counts or when no one is watching or when no one is keeping score? You know, the world is just the opposite. They do good to others so people will notice. But do we serve people because it's a posture of our heart when no one's watching See, the gospel reorients our obsession with our own status and the need to be recognized. It reorients us to the needs of others, not our own needs. And this isn't rocket science. This is another way of Jesus' teaching to love your neighbor, which is the second greatest commandment besides loving the Lord your God. That's all this is. This idea of servanthood is just another way of saying love your neighbor. And let me tell you something about serving others. You don't serve others just because there is an apparent need. In fact, if you limit yourself to serving other people only when there is an apparent need, you won't be a very good servant. Serving others is a posture of the heart. Servants allow themselves to be inconvenienced. They're not enslaved to efficiency, right? Talking with someone who's hurting and you've got to be up at five o'clock the next morning, you know, and it's 9.15, hey, got to go. Well, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you do got to go, but 
Sometimes when you're bearing someone else's burden, you open yourself up to be spent for others. They're not enslaved to efficiency. Servants allow themselves to be spent for others. Servants are poured out for others. Now, some of you are thinking, that doesn't sound very appealing. It's a cost of servanthood. Certainly what Jesus did, he poured himself out for the many, right? He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what the Son of Man did. He poured himself out to be spent for others. We live in a very efficient culture. And if we can squeeze servanthood into our busy schedule, we will. But successfully, faithfully, consistently serving others does not always fit in with a nice, tidy plan. And if you want to know how to serve someone, learn about them. Spend time with people. Ask questions, because it's in the revealing of personal information as you get to know people that you pick up on where people are broken or where they're hurting or where they could be helped or where they're in need. Because let me tell you something. Uh, people don't always volunteer their needs. They don't. <clears throat> because we're embarrassed to do that. It's hard to be vulnerable. Often the person sitting next to you is hurting in ways that you have no clue about because we are not always that willing to share our hurts and pains and needs because people don't always handle with care that information. And so sometimes putting your bleeding, broken, throbbing, palpitating heart on the table is not always faithfully stewarded by others, and so you keep your pains and your needs close to you. And so getting to know people is a way to serve people because in the open exchange of relationship and information, we can love people better. Last week we talked about the communion of saints and that requires relationality with each other. You cannot have communion with one another if there is no relationship. And so, yeah, part of the church and what we do as God's people is we build relationships with other people so we can serve them. The second thing Jesus does is he not only redefines greatness, but he also rewards suffering. Servanthood and suffering. That'll get everybody excited. <laughs> you know, that's, that's incredible marketing for Jesus to build the church in the first century. I've got a plan for church growth. Servanthood and suffering, it's going to go over great. <laughs> Now, lest you think Christians are the losers of history. Because sometimes the message can sound dour and dreary. You gotta serve people, you gotta suffer. Listen to what Jesus says. Not only serving, but suffering with him means we'll reign. All right, remember, we're talking about a question about greatness. In verse 28, he says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials talking to his disciples and all disciples. And I assigned to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Because obviously, they weren't sitting at the tables of the powerful and notable in their own day. Jesus is with the disciples because this 
section comes at the Last Supper. They're still sitting at the table, probably a humble table, in a humble place, right, with humble utensils. You see that Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Yeah. Um, it's just a great scene. It really is. The, it's, it's a great. The movie's okay, but the, the last scene is great because this, this, the bad guy is looking for the chalice, the holy grail, supposedly the chalice cup that Jesus drank out of. And there's a Knights Templar crusader who's guarding eternally the holy grail. And the bad guy, there's all these cups. He says, choose wisely, the, the guardian, because, you know, it could mean your life. And he goes to the goblet that's shiny and gold with rubies and gems on it. And he thinks this surely must be the cup that Jesus and the disciples drank from. And he grabs it and he dips it in the water and he drinks and he's toast, right? Wrong, wrong cup. Now it's Indiana Jones' turn and he goes and there's still a bunch of cups and he grabs, what does he grab? Who knows? He grabs the humblest cup. It's just a wood cup. Nothing fancy about it. I mean, that's a metaphor for the gospel. That is a metaphor for the Christian faith and the Christian life, right? But when he dips it, right, in the, the water, is that what he did? Yeah, it's eternal life. But on the outside, it looks like nothing. I'm kind of getting chills talking about it. On the outside, it looks like nothing. It looks like something you would walk right by and ignore because it's humble. It's not notable. It's not fancy. But in it, there's life. And that's what it's like when you're walking with Jesus and all of the things outwardly seem like markers of shame and humility. Right? The suffering we go through, the things that we endure for the name and the sake of Christ, not reacting the way the world reacts when we're offended and slighted and our ego is bruised. We react differently, we behave differently. Joel Green in his commentary on Luke says, at the end of the age, Jesus will confer regal authority on those who have faithfully endured trials in his name. We're not the losers of history. We're not. Jesus says, the kingdom my father conferred upon me, I'm going to confer upon you, and you will sit with me in an eternal banquet because you've suffered with me. You've been with me in my trials. There is a great reward for those who stick it out with Jesus. You got to stick it out with Jesus. Yeah, you have to endure. You've got to stick it out with Jesus. I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at table in my kingdom. Romans 8:17 says, "Now if we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul told Timothy the same thing. If we suffer, we'll reign with him. Suffering, reigning, connected. Strong cable holding those two things together. Suffering means reigning. Endurance means glory. 
They're connected. All of your suffering is not in vain. It's not for no reason. It's all redeemed because this is the cost of discipleship and walking with a suffering Savior. And it butts up against all that we know because life in the modern world is not about sitting and suffering but reducing it. And we get that, right? Praise God for modern medicine. Reduce the suffering of diseases. And that's a good thing, and we should do that as a culture, but it can become a posture of our mind and heart to where we have no room for suffering on any level. Emotional, physical, mental, on any level. And so the idea that we would somehow embrace the suffering that's left over, the residual suffering that technology and medicine cannot address, is also intolerable for us. He's going, no, 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 no. There should be no suffering. But the aggregate of all of your present suffering, all of your emotional trauma and hardship will result in future glory. And some of that glory breaks into the present where, and it's sweet when it happens, right? When, when you've gone through a trial or you're experiencing some hardship and you can see how God is using it for his glory and for your good. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes it happens and when it does, it's sweet. Where you can say, that's why that happened. Or this is who I've become through this trial. This is who I'm becoming. I'm becoming more like Jesus. And I couldn't have orchestrated it on my own, but God is, has seen fit to put me through like the crucible of trials and affliction and emotional stress and trauma and physical pain and suffering to the point where sometimes I doubt that he even loves me. And somehow through all of that, you're closer to God. And after traveling that rocky road up and down for a while, you're able to feel the presence of God like you've never felt it before. And you think to yourself, if I could have skipped out on this last year of suffering, would I have? And you say, I don't think I would have. Because this closeness with Jesus is so sweet. It's sweet being close to Jesus. And this is what he promises. You will reign with me because you have endured trials with me. You'll reign with me. So if right now in your life there is something happening, I say if, of course there is. Because we're human beings living in a broken and fallen world. It'll all be redeemed and it's not for nothing. God will redeem it. We'll reign with him. Sitting with him in an eternal banquet of feasting and rejoicing and glorification and joy. Because right now sufferings in this life threaten to swallow our joy. Everything one day that was broken and sad, which will turn to joy and happiness, will be that much more joyful for once having been broken and sad, if that makes sense. And Jesus, in conclusion, doesn't ask us to do something 
that he himself wasn't willing to do. He doesn't ask us to endure trials and hardships because he himself hasn't. He already has. He left the throne, became a servant. He suffered immense pain and affliction, and we only have to experience just a fraction of that. And now he reigns in the heavens and invites us to do the same, to follow the road of servanthood, to journey with him along the road of suffering, because it's there that we find true greatness. Let's pray. God, now you know exactly what we need to experience to break us of our pride, our love for this world, our connection to this current, present, evil and wicked age. You know, Lord, how to break us of those lusts and appetites and those ungodly bonds that cause our heart to wander. It is a truth that we grow less when times are good and grow more in times of suffering and hardship. And so, Lord, we pray that none of our suffering would be wasted, that none of our trauma would be for naught. But, Lord, you need to give us a glimpse of the future glory that is yet to be revealed in the coming age here in this life, that we may taste slices of it to continue every day, that we may experience a glimpse of that glory that you have prepared for us for all of eternity. And we cannot endure without your grace, and so we pray for a double, triple, quadruple portion of your grace to endure, that one day we might reign with you around the table in the heavenly banquet when the kingdom comes in its fullness and power. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.